Welcome to Keeping Students in Mind, Understanding Student Mental Health Research, a collaborative podcast series brought to you by All Things Mental Health, Smarten and King's College London. I'm Fatima Mustanzo Dowdboy, a final year medical student at Imperial College London, and today I'm delighted to have Dr. Georgia Walker Churchman join me. Georgia is a lecturer in humanities at the University of East Anglia with a background in English literature. She's been working on a project about student mental health with a special interest in how students can benefit from creative and collaborative experiences by producing short videos on the history of mental health using films and literary texts. Today, we're going to be discussing Georgia's Smarten-funded project called Helping Students to Connect, Create and Collaborate in Their Own Wellbeing. Thanks for inviting me. It's really nice to be here. Georgia, so you're working with Smarten on a project helping students to connect, create and collaborate in their own well-being. Can you tell us more about your research, please? Sure, yeah. So I suppose the first thing to say, uh, lest anyone take anything that I say too seriously, is that I don't have a background in clinical on, on mental health. As you said, my disciplinary background is English literature. The um, proposal for this project just came about through conversations that I was having with colleagues who also worked on kind of representations of mental ill health or madness, things like asylum spaces, and the kind of critical role that that plays in a lot of 19th and 20th century and 21st century indeed cultures. So we were talking about these various different ways that we uh, looked at different texts and we felt that it was a really good idea to try to think about how looking at those things and approaching them from a humanities perspective might actually be able to help students understand their own well-being and to kind of draw out some of those sort of theoretical insights and actually use them in in their everyday lives so that was where the, the project sort of started and, and so we ran the project over uh, the academic year 2020-21, which obviously was sort of peak COVID. So lots of people had lots of whole kind of awareness of mental health was very much sort of in the air. And we got a lot of interest in it. And overall, the group was about 12 students coming in to discuss their mental health and to look at various different texts that we had sort of set up for them. We did a 12-week project and then asked them how they felt, essentially. Yeah, so that was the the structure of it. And I could say lots more. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a very amazing and also relevant research topic to be doing it. So what are the interesting findings that you've made so far and how do you think students can incorporate this more into their day-to-day life? So one of the things that I found very striking about the project was the way that the students articulated their interest in mental health. So I was expecting, having advertised for participants in a project that was looking at mental health, I expected that most of these students who would come forward would be people who had an interest in this from their own perspective. So people who maybe had had some experiences of bad mental health in the past or who were kind of going into sort of a career looking at that kind of thing that would be personal to them in some way. And actually, that just wasn't my finding at all. So consistently, what they articulated, we did two focus groups and three questionnaires for them. So we, you know, we asked them quite a lot about what they wanted to get out of the project. And it all seemed to be about 
them wanting to learn and to create communities around supporting people who who were having difficulties and that was a lot of what the focus was on was talking about what can I do to support my friends and my peers or perhaps partner or family members or, or whoever who are having a difficult time so it was really really striking because and in some ways it actually kind of threw me because I was expecting people to be reflecting on their own mental health but actually they weren't they were well they they were a bit but a lot of it was about them reflecting on their relationships with other people and how they could help them. So it was actually quite moving in lots of ways and a really great, great project. And I suppose I'd just like to take this moment to kind of thank all the students who took part because it was really, it was a really lovely thing to do. So it was interesting in terms of what you were saying about what you think students can could do to, to sort of help themselves. So one of the things that came up in the findings from the Smarten project that we did was that students really wanted to think about how they could start having conversations with people about this sort of stuff. So, for example, talking about pushing perhaps a little bit more than just simply saying, are you all right? So the idea that you ask someone twice if you think that they might be struggling finding a sort of language that people feel comfortable with to share how they're feeling. And I think that's something that depends on every individual circumstances and what their own vocabulary is, if you like. And I think one of the things about student experiences in particular, especially if you're living with people, is that you develop your own vocabulary, you know, around the people that you know and the friends that you, you have things. So it may be that for what would work for one person wouldn't wouldn't work for another. So, for example, we had one student who was a participant who didn't come from the UK. Comments about the cultural background that they came from were that it was much more, you know, there was just much less discussion about mental health and that you know, it wouldn't be terribly in depth if you said that you were struggling. So that was, you know, so for someone who's coming from a different background, then I guess the vocabulary that you would try to use to talk about this thing might be quite different. So I think developing a way of talking about things. And the other things some of them said was actually about feeling confident that you knew where to signpost people to and help them with finding other support that was available to them so the students were very aware that you know we want to help people but we're not therapists we don't have any training and awareness of you could suggesting to friends that they speak to their advisor for example within university or a tutor or um, student support services or something like that so having those institutional knowledge about what support is there to help and yeah, signposting people in, in that kind of direction. Yeah, that's a very long answer. But <laughs> again, I've got more to say. <laughs> but maybe that will come up in, in the context of a, of a different question. So I was, I was running this uh, project with Martin. And I also was at that time teaching on a new module that we are looking at in at UEA on uh, a liberal arts degree. So the module is about ways of knowing and kind of epistemological culture. So it's about kind of argument and intellectual debate and conversation and things like that. 
And obviously, both the kind of consideration of, of mental health and the consideration of how sort of technology has changed the way that we communicate with people are big parts of that whole sort of epistemological question. So we were and question about intellectual cultures. So we're looking at two mid-century texts and then comparing that to modern day thought. And in the course of that, I sent them some reading from a book called The Twittering Machine by a guy called Richard Seymour. And that was very interesting because it was quite related to, well, it's specifically it's about social media, which you can kind of tell from the title, right, The Twistering Machine. And we were sort of thinking about the role of social media and what that does to people's mental health and how they can address that which was interesting because this was something that my students in Smarten had also talked about quite a lot. And in particular, we spent one week where we were looking at various different sources. So I gave them some bits of Freud and some bits of Foucault. We looked at contemporary cultures around mental health. So I basically cut out some articles from Cosmopolitan and gave them to them. And this led actually, interestingly, to a whole discussion about social media and about how the possibility of sort of moderating your social media intake because that's what the articles were about, but then that also became a discussion about using print media and, and, and heritage media to be like, okay, this is, it's a similar sort of thing, perhaps, to, particularly to Instagram, I'd say, you know, clothes, fashion, celebrity gossip, and also some quite kind of inspirational type discourse around, for example, mental health. And uh, yeah, one of the conversations we had about that was the way that people could use magazines like that to sort of almost provides like a sort of fix of social media type content but without necessarily having to engage with that kind of endless scrolling sort of almost addictive tendency which is something that Seymour talks about as well in fact there's a chapter in in the book which is called we are all addicts and it's about addictive technology that a lot of social media relies on to function so yeah, there was some interesting crossover there between the, the two groups. No, that that sounds like a very interesting conversation that you've mm. had with both of them. I really resonate with what you said about that student who wasn't from the UK because I grew up in Asia, so I first had experienced the lack of awareness about mental health. And when I moved to the UK, I had to learn myself on how to broach that topic with friends or family. So I really do understand where he's coming from. So you mentioned the book, The Twittering Machine by Richard Seymour. You also mentioned about what the thoughts of the different groups were, but what were your thoughts on the book and how do you think it relates to the way we live now? I found the book really, really compelling, a little bit scary <laughs> in some ways. So the discussion is is about the kind of, it, it, it's really mainly about the sort of addictive nature of, of, of social media and quite near the beginning he tries to give an account of the way that sometimes social media becomes this kind of boo word that people you know sort of point to and say oh well, this is this is to blame for all of kind of society's ills and things and he wants to sort of move away from that way of of seeing it but I think <laughs> he kind of wants to move away from that way of seeing it and then much of the rest of the book really focuses on (laughs) 
how detrimental it, it can be and, and uh, often is to people's mental health, particularly young people and, and children as well. So kind of tragic chapter in it where he or section in it where he talks about, you know, young young children 11 12 13 years old who have committed suicide after a a sort of bullying campaign it was interesting actually talking to my students about this because we did have a discussion where we said well what then could we how could we think about addressing some of the problems that that he talks about within the book and interestingly a lot of it really suggested that kind of use of social media and, and particularly the kind of more like destructive parts of, of social media could actually be you know they they play out on social media but what they're actually about is existing inequalities that are happening in the world and so you know we were talking about what could be done to to address these issues and, and they were almost all offline so it was like invest in community structures so that people aren't terribly lonely and they don't you know necessarily need to use social media to connect with people develop mental health services so that people have somewhere to go where they can address these problems address cultures of of inequality so people aren't desperately desperately poor and angry and acting that out often in online and and also in real life so those were kind of some of the um, the suggestions that we came up with. But it's a bit, I think it's a bit of a tricky text to offer a full rundown of because it's an interesting mix of theoretical, there are quite a lot of theoretical suggestions, but there's almost like not really an overarching argument. And it relies on quite a lot of sort of empirical evidence and empirical data which absolutely as it should but it yeah I think it it it's not necessarily a book that you would sort of say there's there's one particular aspect of this book that I take issue with or that I have a a particular kind of underlying problem with I'm sure there will be other people who would who would disagree but yeah I mean I thought it was a really fascinating read and quite helpful in encouraging people to be kind of more like the word that I've the word that I the word that I'm now using a lot because it's just come up in that show couples therapy which I've been watching obsessively um is uh, intentional about your use of social media and kind of conscious of the time that you spend on it and that kind of thing which is one of the things that my students were talking about so yes I think that is you know I think that awareness you can't just give yourself to it and expect everything to be fine you have to be aware I suppose like any kind of social media isn't a substance but if we think about other kind of things that we know are addictive for example alcohol you know you can't just you can't just drink whenever you want and think it's going to be okay right like you know that you've got to be a bit cautious about how you use it and what you do what you do with it and that sort of thing and I think you know that you could draw analogies there although of course it you mustn't draw them too closely because they're not the same yeah I think that sort of idea and I see that more now with people Uh, when I was coming up was sort of the first generation of social media users so I got Facebook in 2005 when I was an undergraduate and at that time it was really only available in like a handful of universities in the UK and 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 the US and 
obviously that has just exploded in this um, in the last kind of 15 years and I think people of your generation much much more conscious about about what they do with it and how they use it no thank you that was a very interesting answer and I agree with the way you draw parallels to addiction like it is it's something that we have to be actively aware of how much we're using and how much we're letting it interfere with our day-to-day lives so when I signed up for Smarter, I was very much interested in the topic of students having control over their social media and curating it in a way where it empowers their mental health and not drain it. So do you personally, yeah. based on your research, have any tips for the listeners out there, the students out there on how they can go about taking back control from social media that seems to be running our day to day lives now? Well, I don't use social media at all. So <laughs> in some ways, I'm not I'm not necessarily the best person to ask. But I think I found that coming off social media really improved my life, really improved my mental health. I know that that isn't really a realistic goal for many people. And it's something I've discussed again with a lot of my students. I actually, okay, so here's something I think, and this is not so much for students, it's actually more for uh, lecturers and for people who work within institutions. So I would say, I wouldn't necessarily encourage students to use social media as part of their, you know, everyday engagement with the university and engagement with the, uh, with their learning, for example, you know, I suppose if you're looking at certain kinds of courses, then maybe you would want to do that if you're looking at like digital content creation or something. But instantiating some kind of separation between those two things, I think, is um, a good idea. I mean, when I teach, I encourage my students to use paper copies of their work so that when they're reading so that they don't they're not on their screen with the constant sort of distraction potential distraction of of social media kind of feeds popping up and things like that I encourage students if they can I know this isn't universally accessible because for some people you might have sort of learning needs which means a screen is better for you but taking notes on paper rather rather than having your phone or your laptop as your as your kind of main way of, of accessing university material and lectures and things like that yeah so those are some of the things that I think I mean I think that's more about mental health within the context of the university because a lot of the students that I see are stressed about essays and deadlines and find it really difficult to just actually not be distracted by their socials every five minutes or so but I think that in terms of the kind of curation of content which I know is something you've you've said that, that you're interested in I wonder you probably know more about this than I do actually so uh, yeah I don't know if you've, you've got any thoughts at all. Yeah I think over Covid I realised how toxic social media was becoming to me because I was on it so much and understandably all we had was time during the lockdowns but I think I started realising that I actually had the power over social media rather than it having it over me so I started following pages I wanted to follow that were helpful for my mental health that were helpful for my relaxation like cooking shows or language sites on Instagram so I can learn a new word a day things that would get me off the whole what is this person doing or what is that person doing and I think it's really helped me get a variety so I get a dose of my friends and what they're up to but also get you know new recipes to look at new empowering quotes new um, words that you know of languages I'm trying to learn and it's actually made it more enjoyable to go on social media because before it would just be 
how is how is it going to make me feel today? It's probably going to make me feel horrible because I've been in bed all day, but there's these 10 people that have done a million things and you start comparing yourself to them. So I agree I, for this generation, it's probably hard to remove social media entirely because a lot of things are found on social media other than on like a friendship basis about what they're doing more, you know, relevant things that are happening in the world or events that are happening that you know is relevant to your university but I think it's about just realizing that we actually have control over it rather than it having control over them and I think once that clicks in your head social media becomes a lot more enjoyable and doesn't drain your mental health as much but I was going to ask what made you stop using social media what made you push yourself to do that I just found that it wasn't adding anything to my life. Um, you know, I was, yeah, feeling very anxious about it. And yeah, I sort of had more or less stopped using it anyway. So it, yeah, it became a kind of a sort of conscious choice for me to just to move away from that. It also was around the time that WhatsApp was, but this is like, this is quite a long time ago now. It's 2018, I think this happened. So it was also around the time that WhatsApp became more, people were sort of using it more. And I sort of thought, well, actually, this is another way that I can kind of be in that kind of touch with people that was kind of quite light touch. So you weren't you know, group chats and things where, you know, it's not unlike some other forms of social media where people are kind of mentioning things and they're present to you in the same way. And I sort of thought, well, actually, I maybe focus on that as my way of keeping in touch with people. But again, then a bit more control, I guess, over who you are and aren't sort of talking to and and things like that. So Um, And I knew quite a lot of people who did at the same time, actually. I think it was was around that time, I think there was a change to Facebook's sort of terms and conditions and things, and quite a few people came off. I do now know, I would say, a fair number of people, again, of my generation, I think, rather than perhaps yours, who don't use social media in that way and, and again, kind of rely on WhatsApp. And, yeah, I I hear what you're saying about other apps as well, because I think, you know, people do find sort of a certain amount of you know being able to get out of the room through using some other like almost a distraction technique so I used Duolingo for example and Strava but but yeah social media that is just focused on interacting with people not not so much well it's been absolutely great chatting with you today and about your research and about your experiences and getting your insights into student mental health and social media I'm definitely going to be reading that book, The Twistering Machine, now you've piqued my interest and I want to... It's really good. And I tell you what, there's another book by a a woman called Patricia Lockwood called No One Is Talking About This. And that also is kind of about social media and, yeah, the narrator's sort of use of it and what happens when something goes on in your life that actually it's very difficult to to talk about in in a social media context. So that might be worth looking at as well no that's amazing i'll definitely add those two to my reading list get through them this summer again thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights thank you yeah it was really great to talk to you Fatima. i really really enjoyed it thank you so much no worries thank you thanks a lot